Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. People come from all over the world to explore Mammoth Cave because it's a special place. It's the longest cave in the world. You know, you can come and take a tour at Mammoth Cave and spend a couple of hours. And yeah, that's neat and it's fun, but you really have to love it if you're going to spend 30 hours down on a mapping trip. If you're going to go 10 hours just to where you start mapping and then you map for 8 or 10 hours, then you have to turn around and come back out. Or if you do a camp trip, because for the most part, those are fairly miserable experiences. You know, you're getting bruised up, you're laying in water, you're cold, and you're exerting yourself and you get so tired, but all that sort of fades away and the memories of of what you found and the new things you got to discover and the the people that you were with. And those are the things that really kind of linger on. Hello, and welcome to Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. While our long format episodes explore one hiking trail in one national park, one park at a time, Trail Mix is the short format episode of our show. It's where we get to explore topics we didn't get to cover in our long format episodes, including history, science, environmental justice, and also interviews. Today's Trail Mix is a very special interview with someone that Mike and I have gotten to know over the last few years, caving expert Bruce Hatcher. Bruce's interest in caves began at an early age while attending an elementary school program sponsored by Western Kentucky University. This program enamored Bruce so much that he started regularly caving at a young age. His experience and thirst for knowledge of underground spaces propelled him to guiding in caves in the Mammoth Cave region in his teenage years. This love of guiding and exploring continues to this day as Bruce works as a part-time guide in Mammoth Cave National Park. Along with this, Bruce has gone on to advanced degrees in geology and geosciences from Western Kentucky University. Currently, he works as an environmental scientist for the Division of Water for the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Along with his work for the state and guiding, he is also a lifelong teacher and incredibly passionate about caves. Bruce is someone that we were incredibly fortunate to be able to connect with when we were in Mammoth Cave. If you listen to our episode on the Great Onyx Cave, you will hear about the 
experience we had as he guided us through the cave while on a special research assignment. In this episode, we had the opportunity to dive deeper into caving with Bruce and talk about the importance of the Mammoth Cave system and caves the world over. So today we're lucky and grateful to be able to be here with Bruce Hatcher, who we have had the pleasure of getting to know over the last few years and also having the experience of exploring parts of Mammoth Cave with Bruce. So Bruce, why don't you tell us just a little bit about um, yourself and how you got into caving? I grew up just a few miles outside of Mammoth Cave National Park. My parents still live up there. I don't live too far away right now either. But when I was was young, some of my earliest memories of Mammoth Cave were actually going to uh, the cave sing at Mammoth Cave with my parents. And that's something that they have every December. There's some local music groups and sort of a rotating cast of characters that they bring in there to, to perform. And I remember that. That was some of my earliest memories of even going to Mammoth Cave and what kind of interested me in caves. And uh, as time went on in second grade, I took a, a course offering. It was something they called Super Saturday Seminars through Western Kentucky University down here in Bowling Green. I did the one that focused on caving and we had one classroom session. And then after that, four different trips into caves, which uh, three of them were toured caves and then the the fourth was actually a wild cave where they gave us the helmets and lights and so you can imagine taking a bunch of second graders with helmets on to get all muddy um the professor said that we just came out as just balls of mud and the parents eyes were popping out when we got back out but that sort of lit the fire in me i had a friend whose dad was actually helping to organize a, a group from the national speleological society sort of a local chapter they're called grottos uh, the national speleological society is kind of the country's caving organization if you're looking to get into caving go to www.caves.org but he was starting a local group and so when I was in sixth grade I sort of fell in with them and that's pretty much it I started caving when I was 12 started giving cave tours at a privately owned cave nearby when I was 14 and it just sort of snowballed for there uh, kept going went to college started studying biology and shifted away from that in my sophomore year I switched to geology and loved it uh, largely because of sort of the fascination with caves and stuff so I went went on and did my master's studying pretty much just cave rivers in Mammoth Cave. Got a job with the state of Kentucky to keep me nearby and close so I could continue spending time exploring Mammoth Cave, mapping out new stuff. That's sort of my, my main passion. And um, I've been doing that right now. I've got 15 years in with the state of Kentucky. I currently work for the Kentucky Division of Water, Department of Environmental Protection. We frequently have issues that come up with caves because that's where that's where all of our streams are down in this region mostly they're all underground do a lot of that and then I uh, was fortunate enough within the last few years to fall in a position with Western Kentucky University where I've been able to help teach the our history of exploration at Mammoth Cave Karst Field Studies class and that's basically where we take a week where we stay at the Cave Research Foundation bunkhouses just outside of the National Park and we have about an hour, sometimes two hour lecture in the morning and then spend the rest of the day in the cave uh, seeing some of these places that are sort of off the beaten path and off the tour trails. Bruce, what is it about caves that keeps you curious? You know, everybody just, <laughs> I guess, sort of has their thing that, that, that interests them. And for me, it, it's always been caves. And, you know, you, you work with a lot of people in different jobs that where you interact with caves in some way, form or fashion. And some people are just are, are, are in there and, and doing it and you know they'll do a good job but they're not drawn 
extra to seek out other opportunities. And you kind of notice that with certain people and it sort of forms this smaller clique and the caving community is, is sort of a small group. And once you get into it, you get to know a lot of people. But the thing that's always drawn me tends to be the, the exploration side of things in this day and age with, with satellites and with GPS and all that aerial photography, you can look down and you can see so many areas on the planet and caves are one of those few places that are, are an unknown, you know, you, you, can honestly say if you're exploring and mapping new places in Mammoth Cave that you can be the very first human being in the world to to crawl around a corner or turn a corner and you're the first person ever to see this area or lay eyes on it and it's sort of a a special feeling and that's what most people that do the exploration that is what tends to uh to draw them back more and more is that feeling and the the honor it is to to be able to help out help make the world's longest cave a little bit longer with every trip set a new world record every time but it, it's a very humbling and and sort of spiritual experience too to be able to see you know this is here and i'm the first one to get to experience it and depending on what happens in that passageway if it's a small spot that eventually just fills up and it doesn't continue on then you may be the only person in the world that ever goes there because you may run the survey to the end of it turn around leave and and that's it no group will ever come back if if we know there's not a need to go back we'll leave it undisturbed uh, beyond what we had to do the initial trip to map it out how long is the cave currently? What's our what's our current measurement? I think it was 405 maybe feet. I'm trying to remember when we were there. I think that might have been then. We, we've had some more updates. I believe right now the number we're going with is 426 miles currently. And that's just what we have mapped and put down on paper. There are literally hundreds, you know, if not thousands of passageways we know about that nobody has yet set foot into um, because we map it all as we go. We don't just go and explore and push our way through and then not not make a map because if you were to crawl for an hour down a little tight, nasty crawlway and it just ended, you'd be very you'd have a hard time convincing someone else to go back and map that thing out knowing it doesn't have any potential to to open into something big so we we map it all as we go so nobody's in there just running around and and getting all the the spoils without putting in the work you uh you said before is like it's it's an honor and it's kind of a privilege to be able to investigate and really explore these spaces that people haven't been to before and you'd mentioned you know satellite technology and being able to you know digitally just be able to pull something up you know just by clicking or you know typing in a little bit and caves are sort of like the the depths of the ocean they're sort of this uncharted territory this this kind of unknown space so i can imagine that that is something that lights your fire and it's got to be exciting to just be able to see the connection points and see how much further like you were saying things can be how much more distance can be added into my mammoth cave but even that, I, I think, you know, having other caves that surround the cave system of Mammoth Cave that maybe aren't connected yet, there's an excitement there that there may be a connection point at some point and trying to figure out that. Right. And there's <laughs> there's so much possibility for that. And I believe since I uh, saw you all last, I know it because this just happened last year, we were fortunate enough that another cave was connected into the mammoth system uh, it was a cave that's called stan's well cave it was just outside of the national park actually on some property that uh, a man named stan sides a former president of the cave research foundation owns and when i was in graduate school i had helped out doing some work down there and they even named a passageway after me in stan's well uh, because we were down in this in the lower part of the cave you you go in and you go through some narrow spots and then you 
uh, rappel down a, a shortish drop and then you have to get in this narrow canyon and kind of turn sideways and get hooked under the rope and rappel down another time and repeat that about four more times and you finally get down to the lower parts of the cave where there was a stream flowing and as we went down to the stream I was crawling along and the ceiling kept getting lower and closer to the level of the water the other two guys that were with me sort of stopped in a room where you could sit up in and I got to a point where you know I was laying with with one ear pressed against the ceiling uh, one eye closed and was breathing out the side of my mouth because the, the one side of my face was underwater and uh, I would scoop the sandbanks out of the way uh, from the bottom of the stream so I could keep going and as I would scoop the sandbanks I would have to kind of time my breathing because the waves would cause the water to go up over my mouth so after I went through a couple of those that way I got to a crack in the ceiling that I was able to get up through and then eventually it opened up into a into a, a room that was you know, probably 15 feet wide and 40 feet tall and uh, there was a crawlway that led off of that and we started digging in that crawlway uh, moving the sand out of the bottom it was probably about uh, five inches tall or so and uh, we we sort of backed up and, and 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 left that one because the survey showed that some other passages in Stan's well were actually a little closer to the sections of Mammoth Cave that it was was nearby so we, we looked at those for some years and you know, life kind of got in the way I, I left graduate school I moved off started working full-time had kids and that was one of those places where laying down and <laughs> to bed at night I would I would think back to that crawlway it's like man I need to get back down there and check it sometime and then of course 12 years later after we'd been gone for a while there was a another young guy who was graduating from Western Kentucky University and he was spending some time down there and decided to pick off all these leads and he started digging his way through and he ended up making the connection uh, into Mammoth Cave. He said, originally he told me it was about 30 feet past where we had stopped, which that was all he sort of had to scoop out. Past that, it got a little taller, and, and he was able to make it go uh, to make it uh, a little further. Now, he's much smaller than I am, so <laughs> we would have had to work harder to get through. But when that connection happened, it was one of those things where you kind of kick yourself. It's like, oh, man, why, why didn't I go back and try it again? But it was something where you're sort of disappointed in yourself for not going back and trying, but you're very happy at the time to know that that it happened somebody was able to do it that's the goal of of the cave research foundation is is to map out mammoth cave find out how much is there connect in with these other smaller caves and it's a ongoing process that has been going on for quite a long time back in the 1950s when they originally started to to form the, the cave research foundation we've we've been building on the work that they've done over the years so a lot of stuff that we travel that is just kind of part of the the normal routes on some of our exploration trips there was a point in time that somebody was finding that for the first time and they were mapping it and you kind of look at that and you're you're proud to be part of that chain of events that led to where they were actually able to go through and make that connection because were it not for you know me being crazy crawling through the water like that then and maybe somebody would just left it behind or it would have waited another 10 years for somebody else to to get down there in that situation to be able to do the same thing my curiosity is when you're in another cave system uh, how do you know that you have crossed into Mammoth Cave? Is it just overlooking, like overlaying the maps? Is there Are there markers that are left at like edge points of Mammoth Cave to kind of alert people that they've entered into the cave? Like how, how does that happen? Right. So you, you sort of run a fine line whenever we're mapping in Mammoth Cave. Obviously to map out the extent and to do the science of things and explore things, you, you're going to have some impact because you're going somewhere that has never been visited before. So as we go through, you know, you just have smooth sand in front of you 
if you're crawling through that, you're going to leave a trail where you've crawled through. Or if you're uh, walking, you're going to leave footprints. So there have been times before where people have came out of one passageway and seen footprints or evidence where somebody's crawled through. And then that's something to let you know, hey, somebody's been in here before. Let's try and figure it out. Uh, we will leave survey markers. Uh, so all of the survey in Mammoth Cave is done line of sight where we, in the past, we would stretch a measuring tape and read a compass and an inclinometer to get your horizontal and your vertical bearings. Uh, now we still do that quite a bit, but there's also been advances in the laser mapping technology where you can use uh, some laser range finders that are sort of retrofitted with, with other things that'll give us our compass and clinometer. Uh, so when we do that, you're going from point to point. Uh, now, a long time ago, they'd use the carbide lamps, the miner's lamps, and they would smoke a dot on the wall and you'd write your survey designation. Uh, that doesn't happen very often anymore. Mostly now, people will either use a piece of flagging tape that they'll put there uh, so they're not physically putting something on the cave. That, that works in some situations, in some areas where it's flood prone, they may tie a little tag of some sort on, onto, onto a formation that you're, that's your station. Uh, sometimes we will use a dip of fingernail polish or some soapstone or a graphite pencil or something like that to mark our dots. And uh, every few dots you want to label the survey station so if somebody pops out then they can find that and tie in their survey and that will help when you're putting the maps together to be able to get it all out so there is there is some impact as, as far as the mapping goes but we try to keep that as minimal as possible why do you think it is important for people to study caves and to explore caves well it's important for people to study caves just it's it's a part of our planet you know we we only have one so we want to make sure we are taking care of it in the best way that we can so when you grow up and you live in an area like i did caves were just sort of a part of life growing up i, I would find it very weird whenever we go to the smoky mountains and i would get excited when i saw streams and i would like to play in the streams and try to build little dams and pile rocks up because you know, i didn't see water flowing when I was growing up unless you got down into a cave or found a spring and it's important to protect them and take care of them because they house some very you know, unique ecosystems there are certain animals there that you don't find anywhere else uh, on the planet inside Mammoth Cave National Park you have the Kentucky freshwater cave shrimp the only place in the world uh, that that species is found is inside Mammoth Cave uh, so we want to do our best to protect that and any other animals that are, are down there. Now, also, just why protecting caves is important is very similar to why is protecting water important. And that's where my job comes in with the Division of Water. We're often uh, having to do some extra work looking for sources of contamination. If we get a call and somebody says, hey, there's a there's a spring or there's a cave stream that, that's turned a, a weird color or it's got a smell or something's going on with it and we have to go down there, we take samples, we look. It's not like other parts of the country where you can just start following that stream upstream until you find the source of the pollution. In a cave, that's often not going to be possible. So you have to start canvassing the whole uh, drainage basin. And that's why a lot of work's been done over the years. And even more work can be done um, doing dye traces. That's the way we, we pretty much map out these cave streams where you physically can't go through them. But you know the water's going into a sinkhole somewhere and it's eventually coming out in a spring somewhere else. Uh, so what we'll do is we will have these uh, these fluorescent dyes that we can put into certain sink points or into sinkholes or into a disappearing stream. You can put these charcoal packets out in your springs to, to map out where the water flow goes in these areas. So that at least gives us somewhere to look because you know, without talking any specifics, there have been instances where 
we have had complaints where a stream has been impacted or a spring has been impacted. The water that comes out is uh, is murky and it smells bad. We have to go find the source of that pollution. And there have been situations where that source was over 20 miles away from where we uh, saw it on the surface, where it first appeared. And you talk about difficult. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard thing to do. Um, that's a lot of area to canvas and that's what keeps us really busy. It's a uh, it's difficult. It gets you frustrated sometimes, but it's it's important. And I think you know, in the long run, everybody's <laughs> happy to know that we're there. Are some of us that are, are are caring about that because eventually that water flows into the surface streams that become people's drinking water and things along those lines. Can you just explain what is a karst geomorphologist? Is it specifically exactly what we were just talking about, kind of like investigating water specifically through cave systems? Geomorphology is really the, the study of landforms and, and how the earth is shaped and processes. So when you, you add that karst title on there, that basically means caves specifically. So uh, karst geomorphologist pretty much deals with, with cave formation and, and caves. So uh, karst hydrologist is an is another term that gets thrown around too. I anticipate us creating a a drag queen named Karstiali. Uh, <laughs> yes, with that okay. word. <laughs> um, Karstiali. Karst is 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 the term that you use to refer to any area that has caves and and sinkholes, soluble rock. Uh, it originated from Eastern Europe somewhere, like. Slovenia, Slovakia, I think Slovenia. Uh, there's a region over there that was sort of the, the the original descriptor. That karst region had a lot of caves, and that's where the, the name came from, and it sort of spread from there. What can caves, in your opinion, teach us that relates to other avenues of nature or science? And then a follow-up question to that, since I love talking about the environment, is how is climate change affecting caves? Caves are, are interesting because they are so inaccessible and because each one is isolated, kind of separated from, from any other one. So you can go into a lot of cave systems and when people start studying different caves, they'll find species that are similar, but they have their own particular traits because they don't mix with one another uh, so they're they're very separate and it's a very unique environment that for the most part has been unspoiled by humans and there has been research in, on many different avenues but I know some they've been looking at just bacteria and different things that are found inside of caves and are looking into their potential to actually stop inhibit growth of things, sort of an antibiotic type of thing. Some cancer treatments are, they're looking at different bacteria that were found in caves to, to do different things. So it's just such an unknown and an area that you can go one place to the next and you can find something completely different that may have characteristics that you don't even understand. I guess that is something that's similar to, you think about all the landscapes on the surface and over time, animals are able to migrate and move from one place to the next and they can kind of spread uh, and evolve around slowly and really with a cave they're pretty cut off if you have a creature that tries to swim out of a spring that's adapted to the life of the cave and they're used to living there in the complete darkness well, once they swim outside they are at a, a disadvantage and they're probably going to get eaten they're not going to make it to find the next cave to be able to swim up into so they're all different and unique that's something that I think people should really appreciate anytime they go into a cave to, to make sure you're trying to make as little impact as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like its own little hermetically sealed kind of container. 
that everything is sort of, it's it's an interesting kind of to think about that when yeah the surface anything on the surface can migrate through any means but yeah a cave has sort of sealed itself off and you're right things can obviously flow in and out but if something's flowing in it's at a disadvantage just as much as something flowing out you know or you know some creature flowing out i'm curious if caves have been looked at when it comes to like space exploration or you know undersea exploration just because their environments are so different and closed off um, and how that might factor in, you know, in other sort of like avenues of exploration if caves are sort of like this inflection point for other areas of science. Yes, as far as the research that's gone on and other places that can go, there's there's more that I'm sure I've not even read and just have heard glimpses of. But yes, there is some cave research that has bled over into a lot of those different space exploration and, and all so many different avenues that that they've been able to, to test some things in caves and look at. I, I can't name any particular studies, but I've seen stuff over the years that, yeah, definitely, it's just such a foreign environment that it's interesting. I mean, inside Mammoth Cave, they did sleep studies back in the 1920s where a group from uh, a university in Chicago, they spent a few months inside of Mammoth Cave just to see how their circadian rhythm changed and uh, without being particularly influenced by sunlight. You go way back in the 1800s, one of the owners of Mammoth Cave had a tuberculosis hospital that he ran down there he was trying to cure tuberculosis and you all might have heard about that on your tours but there's just been so many things through the years people have tried just because a cave something different and you gotta you don't know until you check it out what you were speaking of on climate change before too if caves have any looks on that you know, people will ask do you notice any any temperature changes and you know the cave at around here stay about 54 degrees because that's the average surface temperature well over time that may change but we don't really know how quickly that will change because you're not talking about the air you're talking about the rock and that rock has that average surface temperature for this area and you know does it take and uh, maybe people have done studies on this i just don't know about it but does it take hundreds of years for us to notice a few degree change downside of the cave uh, do fluctuations bring it back so you know all that is is one of the challenges to study in a cave and anybody who really gets into it, especially people who go on and do their PhDs and write dissertations on it. Dr. Chris Groves was my professor when I was in grad school. He was my advisor and he put it to me one day in a sense that really made it sort of stick in there. He said, you know, studying caves is kind of like asking somebody to go in and watch 10 seconds of a movie and then write a whole paper about what that movie is about because in your lifetime, you're never going to see more than just a, a brief snapshot in the cave's life. However, Chris Groves is currently doing some research and he's looking at a lot of uh, caves as a carbon sink, looking at the geochemistry of how limestone is dissolved and, and seeing that it actually is pulling, caves do pull carbon out of the atmosphere in a, in a way as they're dissolving out and dissolving the limestone. But those papers are, are still, I think some of them have been put out or if not, they're about to be published. A lot of that going on, but I'm not, I'm not completely in depth. I'm sort of touching, <laughs> touching the edges of some of that research, but there, there's a lot of research to, to keep up with. I mean, that's probably what also continues to feed your drive, even if it's not your area of particular expertise. You have all these other types of cave experts that are discovering all these other things that I would imagine, you know, as someone who is passionate about caves like you are, it's just kind of like, you know, more fuel to the fire. So speleology is basically what they would call it, the study of caves. So I don't know that anybody particularly 
calls themselves nothing but a speleologist, you know, that's, it would be a very general term, but you're right. When you get into it, you know, it's, it's awesome because you get to meet some of the people that are the foremost experts in their world, because it is a small world, but the foremost experts in cave microbiology or karst geology, all these specific aspects, the archaeology of it, the ecology, and, and all the people who sort of found that as their as their particular avenue they want to go down and, and being in a situation where you can help them access some places that maybe not other not many other people in the world know how to get to uh, is very awesome experience for me. I just feel like it's a it's a blessing to be able to to just sit back and learn from them when they're down there discovering some of the things you're showing them and it may be it's stuff that you've seen for for years and been by on many trips, but they come and look at it with a different eye and are pointing out things that we never even realized was there. Recently, in the past few years, they've been having a lot of information come out on shark fossils that are being found in Mammoth Cave, different sharks' teeth, and then even places where cartilage has been preserved. So jaw bones, uh, there was a portion of a shark brain case that has been found down there. So tons of different <laughs> research yes if you if you google mammoth mammoth cave sharks right now that's that's where the shark people live right, so is that what you're telling so me <laughs> this is the start of our the science these, fiction film well, these, the shark people of mammoth <laughs> cave <laughs> you know a lot of people will come in, come around and, and ask that well how do those sharks get into the cave well it, the, the sharks weren't in the cave the sharks were were there when the rocks were made a, a long time ago so we got basically shark fossils left behind in the rocks but you know until we had somebody who is the world expert in Mississippian aged sharks. Uh, we didn't really know what we were looking at, but he just happened to cross paths, work his way down to Mammoth Cave. I believe he lives in New Jersey, uh, and he's been studying the, the caves of, or the sharks of Mammoth Cave recently. There were years that when I was younger exploring in the cave, there would be spots we'd go through this one passage and you'd look up in the ceiling and say, oh, that's a shark's tooth. And you'd point it out to people and they'd say, yeah, shark's tooth. And uh, then you'd have sort of some of the older geologists who'd been around for a long time that's not a shark's tooth that's just a piece of churd it just looks like shark's tooth and then years later as it comes around it turns out it actually was a shark's tooth and they've been found in thousands more of them but most of them are, are small just on the millimeter scale uh, but there are a few that are larger and those are some of the ones we pointed out and, you know that's another thing too you've got this huge hundreds of feet thick chunk of limestone that extends for miles and miles and you just put some what essentially amount to pinpricks that run through it and just happen to be able to find whatever fossils are there so we're only seeing such a small slice of of what's actually in that chunk of rock with badlands recently the western interior seaway and why there are so many fossils there and you know it's the history of the earth is so varied and you know geology has you know geography has changed you know so much has changed throughout the millennia like i'd be curious to learn more of the uh, geological history of the cave and like what like again most of the western United States was under a shallow sea which I guess brings me to a question is how do most caves and I think I probably know the answer to this already because it's the answer to everything sponsored by the national parks but how do most caves come to be or how like what is the process of a cave developing right well for cave development um, one of the first things that you need is a soluble bedrock so in our situation at around here in south central kentucky you're talking about limestone uh, you can have gypsum or halite or you know, different types of uh, situations that caves are formed in but when we're talking about solutional caves which is what mammoth cave is uh, you need a soluble bedrock uh, which was formed <laughs> when you talk about plate tectonics a while back when 
the rocks of Mammoth Cave were actually closer to the equator when they were formed underneath a, a shallow sea in the Mississippian time period, uh, eventually got uplifted and moved around. You need a chemically aggressive water. Water by itself isn't going to do anything, but you have to have uh, something dissolved in there. So in Mammoth Cave, you have what we call meteoric water, basically rainwater that comes down, it picks up some carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or from the decaying plant and animal material in the soil, makes a carbonic acid. That's what's going to start to dissolve away your soluble rock there. If you're talking Carlsbad or some other places out west, they have a hypogenic cave development. They have sort of sulfur water that was rising up. So you need soluble bedrock, a chemically aggressive water, then um, you need a gradient, so the water has to be able to go in somewhere and come out somewhere else. So that, that water is dissolving the rock away, but if it can't flow out at the bottom, then you're just going to get a bunch of water that dissolves as much as it can. It reaches saturation and it can't dissolve anymore. Uh, so it has to be able to drain out uh, so you can keep getting a fresh source of this water in there. And uh, then after that, you just need plenty of time. It takes a while to, to get all that to go through. So. Those are the main ingredients that you're looking for when you're looking for a solutional cave. So erosion. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Good old erosion. Yes. Chem- <laughs> Strikes again. Chemical, <laughs> chemical erosion is typically what we'd call that one here. Yes, chemical erosion. So, you know, if you go out west, I noticed in sort of my geology field camps, you'll have a lot of these limestone layers that will be the, the ridge formers. They make the tops of the ridges out there. You have these limestones because physically and mechanically, they're pretty tough rocks. They're hard to drill through if you're drilling and stuff like that. Uh, physical weathering, like wind and freeze and thaw and, and things along those lines, don't really affect limestone as, as much as that chemical weathering as it gets dissolved by a, a, an acidic water, whereas the sandstones uh, over here in the east tend to be our ridge formers because they hold up a little better with the chemical weathering. They may not be bothered at all by that acidic water, uh, but they get more messed up by wind and freeze and thaw and things like that. And when you're able to have a lot of vegetation covering the tops of the ridges here in the east, they may not get battered by the wind as much. So you get the sandstone that makes the resistant ledges that hold the top. So that would come back around to what we would call differential weathering. Some stuff gets weathered out easier than others in different climates. And, you know, my with my job in environmental protection, largely what we are out and doing when I go around to work, we're trying to protect the the waters of the Commonwealth of Kentucky and, and keep things you know, free from pollution and check in with places that, that have permits to, to do certain processes. And, and generally people aren't excited to see you when you show up in that job. And whenever we, you know, knock out the the inspections that we have to get done and check on the places, often I'll get requests from schools to, to come out and talk to different classes. And I've put together a bunch of different PowerPoints on things. And that's one of the things that I really find the most rewarding about the job is just to be able to go out and you know, talk to some kids who you know, maybe see this, this stuff all the time. They see sinkholes or they've seen caves and to be able to tell them, well, how did that form and why did that form? Because I remember for me, that was one of the things that really drew me to geology was I was learning about stuff that I'd been seeing for years, but you just kind of take it for granted. Then when you actually start to learn about why things are the way they are, it it really stuck with me. So uh, that's one of the things that I really enjoy being able to do is to sort of educate people about the stuff that is part of their daily lives that they might not really understand what's going on that has led it to to look the way that it does. How has for you in the time that you've been doing it, which has been a long time, how has caving changed? How has it changed in a general sense? And then for you, how has it changed in a personal way? Well, caving has really changed throughout the time that I've been involved with it, just 
with the technologies that we have. Um, when I first started, we were completely doing everything with, with compass and measuring tape. And the compasses that I used were compasses that you kind of put up to your eye and sort of read through. You know, even before my time, they would use Brunton compasses where you had to hold them down and they were just a whole different situation. We would use those compasses and now we have more laser measuring stuff. And I have been slightly out of the game here in the last few years, especially since COVID times. I've sort of slowed down with a little bit because of having young young kids not being able to get a free, as free as often. I still do whenever I can, uh, but I'm amazed when I go with some of the, the folks who are really staying on the cutting edge of things to see just the tablets that they're taking in the cave and the real-time data. They they have a, an instrument that they are mapping, taking their survey shots, and it's Bluetooth speaking to a tablet that they have right there in the cave, so they're automatically getting their survey data sent into the tablet where they can do their sketch right there in real time while they're looking at things. Whereas most everything we've been doing for years, you would do your sketches inside the cave, you'd bring them out, they would get scanned in, and then somebody would put them over top of the line plots that were generated from our numbers, and they would get redrawn at the computer, where now you sort of take that middleman out and you're able to get you know, better sketches because there isn't that go-between of maybe one person did the sketch in the cave and then another person is, is drafting it onto the map and they might not understand something that they, they wrote on there or some symbol that they put, whereas we try to generalize that and keep it standardized across the board as much as possible. But the fact that you can have somebody drawing the final map right there in the cave is something that we're just barely scratching the surface of. But as time goes by, I could see that be more the, the norm than the exception as it is right now. So hopefully if I'm still doing this 30 years from now, like some of the folks that are in there doing the, the exploration at Mammoth Cave that I look up to as sort of legends. They are in their early 80s and still going on long, hard trips that I just hope to be in their shoes one day. And I can't imagine the changes I'll see when that point comes around. But if you think all the way back through the history of cave, Native Americans were down there with nothing but burning torches and they were covering miles and miles worth of cave passage. And as time goes on from there, you move on to the, the open-faced lard oil or whale oil lamps and then to Coleman lanterns and carbide lamps that people use for exploration. And you finally get into headlamps with, with batteries. Those wouldn't quite last as long, so people didn't use them as much. And then with the invention of LED lights and the ability to have batteries that will last 30 or 40 hours at a run that sort of pushed a lot of the carbide caving out of the way some people still do it for nostalgia or as a chance to have heat source while you're down in the cave if you're not moving you start to get cold and heat up with that but you don't see those around as much anymore it's a it's an ever-changing and evolving thing and a lot of people in the caving world kind of say if you if it's a if it's out and available in the private sector or in the government sectors and you can use it in your everyday life then give it a few years and eventually it'll it'll get retrofit and cavers will figure out a way to make it work for us. We talked a little bit about this when we were together. The Cave Research Foundation, is that you collecting oral history of people's involvement with caves in the area specifically? Because when we were together, you told us like an incredible story of there was a lot of kind of infighting between people who thought they owned part of Mammoth Cave and, and then there were other caves in the area. You told us like the yarn was very long and but so fascinating because it was a lot of just family dynamics, truly interesting information. And I remember you talking about someone 
and I can't remember who, but maybe this is what the Cave Research Foundation part of this mission is, and you can illuminate me in a minute. <laughs> but um, I feel like you were talking about someone who had such a great knowledge of the cave system, and you're like, we and we had talked about this, Desi had mentioned an oral history project. So is this sort of that avenue that you're traveling now? So the, the karst field studies that they do at Western Kentucky University, um, they have been doing those for decades, and they cover lots of different different areas, so I'm sort of speaking on behalf of my involvement with that here, is that they have a, a karst geology course and a karst geomorphology course and, and the sciences, and they sort of stay up to date with that. Well, for years, Dr. Stan Sides, he's an oncologist that lives in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and he was president of the Cave Research Foundation when the connection between Flint Ridge Cave System and the Mammoth Cave System was made, and that's what made Mammoth Cave the longest cave in the world you know, back in 1972. Well, he taught that course for over 30 years, and he stopped doing it. And on occasion, when I'd run into him, he would try and convince me to to teach the class, take it up. And I said, "Stan, there's there's no way I can't fill your shoes. You you lived all that. You were." You were there through it all, and that's a tall order. And he said, well, you know, if you don't do it, it's just going to die. Nobody's going to do it. Somebody's got to pick it up. And he said, maybe one day, 30 years from now, you'll have somebody saying the same thing to you, and they'll feel like they can't fill your shoes. And, and I, I definitely, as long as I'm around and doing it, I will still say I'm I'm teaching Stan's course. I'm teaching the History of Exploration course because it stands in my mind. But there will be stuff that you read in, in books and the stuff that got written down is a great story, but I got very curious about some of the players in that story and, and wanted to find out a little more on them. And as time goes by, less and less people are around that knew about them. And so that's when I decided, hey, I want to start just sitting down and having a conversation with these folks like I would normally out at uh, Hamilton Valley where the research station is. I want to have a conversation with them just... Uh, the way we would have over dinner, but I'd like to record it because they're going to tell stories that are important to this exploration and about the people that have been doing this that will be lost if we don't start, you know, writing that down. I'll sit down and I'll talk to Stan about something and he'll be telling me a story about things that they did decades ago. And I said, that's amazing. Is that written down anywhere? And he said, no, that's, that's not important. That's not history. That's just stuff we were doing, messing around. And I said, that is history. Like, if it's yesterday, I'm considering it history. So that's, that's why I'm trying to get down and, and gather whatever I can. And you know, time constraints makes it hard, but I'm trying to prioritize and getting some of the folks that have been around the longest and who are getting up there in years to to try and get their input as best as I can. But the way that I've approached uh, that course is if, if it happened yesterday and beyond, we're going to consider that the history of, of the exploration of Mammoth Cave. So we start off talking about Native Americans. We work all the way up through the, the big important connections that people usually talk about. And then on the last day, I talk about sort of current exploration and things that we have going at the time. So that's um, the way I've looked at it is I want to make sure that we are trying to get some kind of files that we can that we can keep so we know the stories and we know the people and, and then we'll make it a little more compelling because that's the thing that's always drawn me in about the exploration of Mammoth Cave. Yes, it's a fun thing that we do, but it, it is sort of a family and you really form a bond with these people because people come from all over the world to explore Mammoth Cave because it's a special place. It's the longest cave in the world. You know, you can come and take a tour at Mammoth Cave and spend a couple of hours and yeah, that's neat and it's fun, but you really have to love it if you're going to spend 30 hours down on a mapping trip. If you're going to go 10 hours just to where you start mapping and then you map for eight or 10 hours, then you have to 
turn around and come back out or if you do a camp trip because for the most part those are fairly miserable experiences you know you're getting bruised up you're laying in water you're cold and you're exerting yourself and you get so tired but all that sort of fades away and the memories of, of what you found and the new things you got to discover and the, the people that you were with and those are the things that really kind of linger on and some of my best friends and some people that groomsmen in my wedding were from I met them at Mammoth Cave while we were mapping and exploring that's uh, that's a neat thing about it and that's what I've kind of tried to focus on is more the the people and their stories and that's sort of the the thing that's really hooked me into it the more that I've gotten to know it yeah the exploration's neat but I like being able to you know not only hear these stories but then to eventually be able to pass those along as well the first year that I helped take over the class me and and David Kim took it over and Dave was really great he was an excited encyclopedia of the older stuff in Mammoth Cave and he would kind of go up to the 1920s and the cave wars and that time and then I would take over and go through the rest of the class and one of the participants in the class that first year said something that really stuck to me and I've kind of tried to go with that from year after year he said uh, you know this is the way that Mammoth Cave has always meant to be seen we we show up and we come here and we spend a week and we go in the cave a few different times and we hang out in the evenings and if you go back to the earliest days of cave tours at Mammoth Cave before the train lines ran out there when it was just a stagecoach you would come in on a stagecoach and it may take you weeks to get out there and you'd stay at the hotel and you would take multiple trips in the cave and then you would sit around on the porch at night with those people and that was something that was real to me that I had never even thought about before we were given the opportunity with this course to do something that had roots hundreds of years earlier and it's the same way as I crawl down a passageway and go through a little spot and get to a place where you can finally sit up and you see on the wall Stephen Bishop with his name written from the 1800s and you think oh man what was he doing back here and and you realize he was doing the same thing I was he was just curious he wanted to know what it was and that's the connections that, that hit the hardest and really put into focus why you do it if you enjoy those things those are the most memorable and meaningful parts of exploring. Yeah, if anybody gets an interest in caves and and really wants to know where to go and how to do it safely, that's a, a thing that's really important to remember. You know, just anybody can go running into a cave, but you, it can be very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, so one of the best ways to reach out would be to go to caves.org. That's the National Speleological Society. And if you go to the area uh, on the webpage that says grottos, that's all the local chapters of the National Speleological Society. And they have them all across the country. So they are, for the, for the most part, probably some within an hour or two's drive everybody's house. So that's a good place to start to learn how to, to cave safely. And anybody who's interested, I would, I'd recommend doing it that way. And, and being able to find some people who can help guide you along the journey. And if you really fall in love with it, you can eventually partner up with the Cave Research Foundation and do some mapping in Mammoth Cave. We don't really teach people to map. You sort of learn all the safe techniques before you come there, how to go up and down ropes safely and how to do the mapping. And then we eventually bring you there. Or if anybody is interested in learning about different aspects of the cave, you can go to the Western Kentucky University Karst Field Studies website and see what offerings they have. Each summer they have different week-long classes and that's something that can help people uh, explore a little more beyond what where people generally reach. You know, taking tours will, will get you to one level of, of involvement and for the people that are craving more than that, those are some options to, to grow and continue on. All right, so do we want to play a game that Oh, yes. both of you can play. No, it's okay. Yes. So, right. um, so this is an on-the-fly game. Okay. It's um, it's cave rhyme time, everybody. All right. So, 
this game, every word that I'm going to give you rhymes with cave. However, I'm going to give you three successive clues to see if you can guess the word that rhymes with cave. Does that make sense? Yes. Here's the first one. And if you know it off after the first clue, you're more than welcome to just go ahead and answer. All right. Barbasol. Shave. Yeah. What is a shave cave? Oh. <laughs> the other clues were going to be Schick and Mach 3. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. So that's for 100. For 200. For 200. Sit still. Stay cave? Mm, not stay, but that. No talking. Raise your hand if you want to ask a question. This might be a, maybe a little bit of a curveball for you. <laughs> I don't know. If I'm asking you to do all those things in class, I'm asking you to do what? Oh, behave cave? Behave cave. What's a behave ah. cave? <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> okay, Ziploc bag. Save cave. No, oh, you got it, Bruce. You were on it. Oh, the God. other was were going to be floppy disk and uh, flash drive. Save cave. Okay, that's 300. For 400, hunger. Crave cave. Oh, man. On it, on it. Okay. And for 500, sonar. Wave cave. Yeah. Oh my gosh, oh, Bruce. Yeah. Well done. Bruce is coming in like lightning. Mm. There you go. And oh, that's okay. cave rhyme time. <laughs> this has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gaze at the National Parks at gmail.com. To find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gaze at the National Parks.com. And that's gaze, G A Z E. All original artwork featured on Instagram, our website, and in the Gaze Shop is by Michael Ryan. All original music was written and performed by Dave Seaman and Mariella Klinger with Sean Sklios on guitar. Our music producer is Skylar Fordgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge, while recording this episode, we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Middlesex County, New Jersey. 